Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 9. Last week in Matthew chapter 8, the big idea that Matthew was getting across to us was that Jesus had all authority and all power. And essentially what we were doing in Matthew chapter 8, the whole chapter last week, is we were just as a people reading through it and just staring at his authority and his power, right? Because when you see that, then some things in your life start feeling more in place, When you stare at the Lord, when you gaze upon his power and his authority, you start understanding, oh, these other things that I thought had so much authority and power, they don't because when I stare at this, this other stuff doesn't. It's almost like staring at like a 1,000 lumen flashlight and thinking this is really, really bright, but then looking at the sun. Like it's, you can't even tell if the flashlight's on when you're staring in the sun uh, uh, during the day, staring at the sun. And the idea is there are things that think they seem bigger than us, they seem really powerful. But those things pale in comparison to the authority of Jesus. So that was Matthew chapter eight, and as we get into Matthew chapter nine, as we saw that Jesus had authority over sickness and darkness and death and and all this, and he leveraged this power for the powerless and the outsiders. As we get to Matthew chapter nine, today we're gonna look at how we're supposed to respond to that authority and that power. Because it's one thing for us to affirm it or to witness it, it's one thing to look at the power and say, yeah, that is power, that's a lot of power, He has all power, he has all authority, but it's something completely different to not just acknowledge it, but to respond to it. How do we respond to the authority of Jesus? Well, that is what Matthew 9 is about. We wanna hedge ourselves, we wanna protect ourselves from responding like the guys in Matthew 8, 19 through 21 who said, you know, I'm gonna respond to this power with pride or delay. Oh, you know, you have all authority and power and I'm gonna submit to it later. We don't wanna respond that way. What we wanna do is we wanna respond correctly. The Bible tells us how we're supposed to respond and that's what Matthew 9 is and I want us to do that. I want us to respond appropriately and correctly every single moment of every single day to the power of God, amen? All right, I don't want us to take it lightly. I don't want us to cheapen it. I want us to respond to it appropriately. And so in Matthew chapter nine, he tells us how to do it. So let's get into it. Matthew chapter nine, let's go to verse one. We're gonna read through uh, verse eight. So uh, after he did all these things in, in chapter eight, he's around the Sea of Galilee. He got into a boat and he crossed over and came to his own city. What was the city? Well, it's the northern part of Israel, right? He's in Capernaum, he's in uh, Nazareth, he's in uh, um, the, the northern part of Israel where the Sea of Galilee is. There's lots of cities around the outside of it. It's, an all, it's a fishing town, it's kind of where he grew up. Uh, it's a beautiful place. The lake is huge, it's not salt water, but the way that the lake is positioned with uh, mountains around it, the wind rips off the mountain, comes down through the lake, and you've got waves on this freshwater lake that a lot of these guys spend their time fishing off of. Well, this is the setting of the story. He gets into his boat, goes over to his own city, verse two, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So a man who was paralyzed, he couldn't move. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, "This, this, this man, he's blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? 
For, for which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And the crowd saw it and they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. All right, I'll pause there because there's a lot happening. This story in, in Matthew chapter nine, Matthew's interesting because he, he kind of breezes through it and he goes through it quickly. Um, we find the same account in Mark two, one through 12 and Luke five, 17 through 26. The story in Mark and Luke gives us a little more details. So I'm not gonna read those, but I'll kind of fill in the details from what we learned from Matthew. In Mark and Luke, we're told that it wasn't just a, a, guy, a bunch of guys who had faith and brought this paralytic. It was actually a group of friends and they brought their friend to Jesus. But when they brought him, Jesus was inside this house teaching to this huge crowd and the guys couldn't get their friend to Jesus. So what they did was they climbed up on top of the roof and they started taking the roof apart. They started ripping shingles off. And I can imagine Jesus sitting in this, you know, this room with tons of people and people are like kind of peeking in through the windows just so they can kind of hear. And there's just hundreds of people all crowded around and Jesus inside. And all of a sudden he's teaching and like little dust falls on his head, right? And then a little more. And all of a sudden some debris falls and Jesus looks up and I can imagine everybody's kind of like, whoa, what is happening? And pretty soon like there's a, like light is shining through. I can imagine Jesus just stops and he's just like watching. He's like, man, this is entertaining. I can't wait to see what happens next. And eventually, we're told in these other stories that they lowered their friend down on the stretcher right in front of Jesus. And Jesus marveled at their faith. The faith that produced the action of ripping apart a roof and lowering down this man in front of Jesus to get prayed for. Well, their actions are the important part of the story because Jesus tells us in Matthew 9, he mentions it in 6, uh, Mark uh, 2, and in Luke uh, 5. He mentions this um, often that uh, in all these situations that he saw their faith that produced this action. Their actions, what they did by ripping apart the roof and bringing their friend there was rooted in faith. They believed something and therefore they took action. You follow? This is the big setup. The idea that faith is not just this thing, it's not, it's not a knowledge, uh, it's not a feeling, it is best expressed in our response to Jesus. Faith is not something that just sits there. It's not just something that you know deep down on the inside. It is a thing, it is a spark, it is a catalyst, it is something that produces action, results, in your life. You do something because of what you believe. You follow? Yes. We see this in Matthew chapter 8 with the centurion, right? Hey, you don't need to come home and heal my servant. All you got to do is say the word. I believe. We see it here in Matthew 9. This is what the entire chapter of Hebrews 11 is all about. It's an entire chapter of people who believed what God said and changed their entire lives because of it. Oh, you say go to a foreign land? Cool, I'll just sell my house and we'll just move. Where are you headed? I don't know, but, but God said go, so we're going. I believe, and therefore, I'm gonna start putting action to what I believe. I'm going to start changing things. And we see it here. This idea that faith produces something inside of it. The idea that I believe, and therefore my actions are gonna flow out of that belief. 
Now we're gonna, we're gonna get more into that in a minute, but before we do, I wanna look at the response of the religious folk. Because what Jesus says here is interesting. So G, the, the scribes are all upset, right? This guy is blaspheming. He says the sins are forgiven. And Jesus puts up an interesting argument there. He goes, okay, I mean, I know your, I know your thoughts, so I, I know what you're going through. So let me just ask you a quick question here. Uh, what do you think is easier? Like if, I, if I'm who I say I am, what would be easier for me to declare? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Well, you can't really test whether the sins are forgiven if I say your sins are forgiven. So that's the easier thing for me to say. If I want to be a fraud, I can just walk around saying, well, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And no one can really test to see if I am who I say I am because I'm saying things that can't be really measured until much later. But so you know that I have authority over the forgiveness of sins, I'm also going to say, rise and walk. To prove to you that I have authority over both, I'm gonna do the easy thing first that you can't test, and then I'm gonna do the harder thing to prove that both of them, even though one of them can't be tested, both of them are true because the hard thing I did. Now the hard thing that he uses to prove that he is the one with all authority is, is interesting because what he's saying here is I have authority over both and I'm gonna prove that authority by telling this man to rise up and walk. Now that phrase, rise up, is super important for today. If, you got, if you're one of those folks, the crazy folks who like to write in your Bibles, go ahead and underline it. The word rise in verse six, rise. This is the command, rise. Because that command is Matthew's, chapter for this is Matthew's goal for this entire chapter. He is saying in many, many ways, that the only proper response to Jesus' power is to rise. Get up. Wake up. Stop being there. Get up. Follow me. Don't sit there. Don't stay there where you are. Stop sitting in your mess. Stop pretending like what you've built is enough. Get up. Rise up. Come back from the dead and follow me. The only proper response to Jesus' authority and power is to get up. Stop laying down, stop sitting there, get up. Now this is just like the freight train getting started. This is the first time he introduces this. He introduces it with the idea of this paralytic. What is Jesus saying? Rise. Get up. But then he, he, he underlines that principle with his own story. So jump to verse nine, Matthew 9, 9. It says, Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. What did Matthew do? He rose. Got up and he followed him. Now I'm gonna read a little bit more because the story is really entertaining. We'll come back to that. Jesus reclined at the table in his household. In the household, what household? Well, most theologians, and if you look at the, the, the story and the other things, it was probably Matthew's house. Matthew was probably a really wealthy dude. Tax collectors had a lot of money because they had a reputation from, of, of skimming off of the top from their own people. 
See, tax collectors wasn't a great job at the day because essentially what you are is you're working for the occupying force, enforcing the taxes of this occupying force on your own people. You are a Jew, but now you're working for the enemy and you're telling your family, hey, you need to pay me the taxes so we can pay this occupying force who is really only has authority because of power. And also, how do I get paid? It's not from them paying me. I don't get a salary. I'm gonna add percentages to the taxes so that I can get mine. So Rome requires 6%, but I'm collecting taxes today, so it's 10. And I'm gonna keep that four. So tax collectors, they were wealthy, but they were not liked. Their only friends were other tax collectors. So when Matthew finally has this moment where his life is transformed, guess what he does? He throws a party because he's excited and he wants to share the joy with his friends who are other tax collectors. So they all get together. They start hanging out. Verse 10, Jesus reclined at the table in the household. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees. Oh, they didn't like that. They saw this and they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Ew. But when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. See, at the time, what the Pharisees like to do is they like to avoid sinners. They like to put themselves in quarantine against those who they saw as the ones with sickness. They had to avoid them at all costs. And Jesus says, look, I, I'm, I'm kind of like a, a doctor. I'm here to heal. And what good is it if a doctor goes into quarantine, who's gonna get healed if the person with the medicine won't see the people who are sick? But it's even more than that, guys. And then he goes on in verse 12, he says, he said, look, those who, who are well have no need of physician, those who are sick, verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, so Matthew, let's go back to his call because this kind of leads up to that. We go back in verse nine to Matthew's call and essentially what's happening is Matthew, the way the tax collectors worked is they kind of set up their booth in the region and they collected taxes. So probably what's happening here is there's a lot of merchants, a lot of trading, a lot of fishing, a lot of stuff that's gotta be taxed. And so Matthew, as a tax collector, he sets his booth up on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as the fishermen are coming in and he's kind of taking the, the, you know, the taxes. And so, so this is his hometown, this whole region. He knows everybody here because he's constantly collecting taxes from everybody. So it seems far-fetched to think that at this part of the story, Matthew didn't know who Jesus was. Chances are that Matthew did know who Jesus was because up to this point, Jesus is drawing huge crowds. Tons of people are bringing their sick to him. Tons of people are getting healed. And Matthew's sitting here and he's collecting taxes and, and, and he sees Jesus and he hears, what do you do? And I can just imagine that all these stories of what Jesus is doing are starting to build Matthew's faith. And Matthew's like, man, this guy, man, he, man, he might be the real deal. But I, I gotta get back to my thing. Yeah, you know, so two extra percent, and then, you know, man, something, he did something else. He took, they took the roof off, and he said, what? That's crazy, man. Yeah, it's going, he's going about his daily life, but he keeps hearing this. I can imagine his faith is building, and then one day Jesus walks by, and he's like, Matthew, Matthew. Whew, man, when Jesus calls your name, buddy. Mm, that almost brings me to tears, because I remember the day he called my name. I remember, I was like a Matthew. I mean, I wasn't a bad person. 
I've never done all the bad things everybody talks about, but I remember being a lukewarm person who was just, I built my own little booth and I was doing my own little thing and I had my own little plans for my life. And then he called my name. And he said, follow me. And I had a decision to make. I could stay there in this little makeshift booth that I had built for my life and my plans. And it was decent plans. They were good plans. I would have made a good life. But I had to decide when the master says, follow me, do I stay or do I get up and follow him? Because I can't do both. I can't follow him and stay where I am. And that's the point of what Matthew's trying to drive home. You can't follow him and stay where you are. You can't do what he's asking you to do and continue to do all the things you've been doing your entire life. And this is a huge spectrum. This is for those of you in here who refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, but he's still calling your name. And you're surrounded by all these people who are talking about all the things that God is doing. You're like, man, my faith is building a little bit, but I got these plans for my life. And then Jesus calls your name. And he says, follow me. And you've got to make a decision because you can't sit where you are. You can't stay where you are. You can't obey him and also obey your own desires and stay where you are. So Matthew gets up and it's cause for celebration. But the thing about this follow me was that the celebration was exciting because there was more in just those two words. Matthew records it as just a follow me, but Matthew knew what it was behind. What, what, what Jesus was saying was, Matthew, come. I want you to be my student. I want you to come after me. I'm gonna teach you, I'm gonna train you, I'm gonna prepare you. I'm gonna make your life worth more than just this little tiny tax booth, but you're gonna have to get up. And all the excitement of what that follow me meant overflowed into joy where Matthew had to tell other people. Man, you're never gonna believe what just happened to me. My life's done. I'm done in the tax collecting business. And here's the thing about Matthew. The other disciples, if things didn't, work out, like they could have gone back to fishing, right? Because there's always fish. But when it comes to collecting taxes, if Rome doesn't have the guy collecting taxes because he quit, guess what? I'll just hire somebody else because there's 50 people waiting in line to take this job because everybody likes padding their pockets by collecting taxes. So by Matthew making this decision, he can't go back. And he's so excited about the fact that he can't go back, he throws a party. And everyone comes and everyone's excited except for this one group of people, the religious folk. And the religious folk are mad because Jesus is surrounding himself with guys like tax collectors and sinners. Well, the thing about religious folk is that they're always mad at something. And that's a self-diagnosis right there. Go and look at your life. Do you kind of always operate on this like low-grade angry at something? Is it because you prioritize tasks and lists and accomplishments over people who were made in God's image? Because that's what religious people get mad at. We didn't do it that way before. I've never seen it done this way. Well, that's probably a good thing. Were there a lot of results in the way you saw it done before? No, but there was some comfort in the fact that I knew what to expect. Jesus says to those religious people, and he says to us too, 
I want you to go and study something. And here's what's interesting. I want you to go and read and study a book that you all, all you religious people, all you Pharisees, you love this book. You read it constantly. But you're not letting it digest into your soul. You're reading it, but you're not walking away changed. So what I want you to do is I want you to go read it again. And I want you to understand, I want you to kind of dissect this one little section of scripture. What does this one little part mean? That I desire, not sacrifice. I desire mercy. What does that mean? Where is that? Well, that's in the book that you love. Go read it. So Jesus tells them to go do this, and I think what we should do is we should read it because we don't want to be guilty of the same thing these guys were guilty of. We don't want to love this book but not obey what's in it. So what he's quoting is Hosea 6. It's a prophet, a minor prophet, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. I just want to read it for you. Hosea says, Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, but only so that he may heal us. He has struck us down, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, come on, how did you miss that? How did you, how did they miss that? They missed it because they didn't want to see it. On the third day, what does he do? He's going to raise us up. He's going to raise us up. Then, what what do we do then? Then we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So what am I gonna do with you, O Ephraim? What am I gonna do with you, Judah? These tribes who rebel against your king, what are you gonna do? Your love towards the Lord is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. It's there in the morning, but by the, day, by the end of the day, it disappears. I'm gonna hewn you by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as a light. Because why, why, why did I have to do this? Because I desire steadfast love. Not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. Why am I having to, 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 to discipline my people, as God says? Why am I having to do this? Why am I having to, 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 to tear them and then bind them up? Because they're convinced that what I want is sacrifice and burnt offerings. What they, what, what they think that I want is their, them to show up on time to church every time the door is open, is to sing the loudest and to read the, that's not, that's not what I want. What I want is them. What I want is steadfast love. What I want is mercy. I want them to show mercy to people around. That's what I want. And guess what? When that starts happening, your heart starts transforming and you look more like the king and less like you. And then the singing and the showing up, that's not something you gotta do. That's something that you want to do. It's something that you get to do. And we move from this part of like, oh, I have to, I've got to, I've got to check it. No, that's not part of the equation anyway for anybody. Because when you, are, when you have given yourself to something greater than yourself, then everything you do in expression of that love is just an overflow. None of it has to be done. All of it is a joy in just simply doing it. Yes. And that's what Jesus is telling these Pharisees. I, 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 just, I just saved somebody's soul, man. 
I just saved this dude's life. I just pulled him out of it. You know, you have no idea what this guy's going to do. And he called his friends in. This is exactly what I want happening. Are you going to come over here and throw a wet blanket on it? Why? Because you don't like me hanging around these people? If I don't, who's going to tell them about the glory of God? Because it's certainly not you. You won't do it. Can we, guess, can, can, can we see what Matthew's pointing at in chapter 9? Jesus came to raise us up. And the question we get asked now is raise us up in what way? How were we raised? How were we raised up? Well, it's a couple ways. We're raised up when we're born again. When you become a Christian, in a sense, you are raised from darkness to his marvelous light. You've been raised up. In another sense, that, and really that just being raised from darkness into light, that's, that's just a small shadow of what's happening at the, uh, the end of eternity when Jesus returns and he raises us back from the real dead and transforms us for eternity. The resurrection of the dead, that's the ultimate goal. That's the ultimate raising up. That Jesus was just the first fruits of that. All of that's coming our way, all of it. But the small, the small representation of the raising up when we get saved, the huge representation of it when it comes when he returns, in the middle is filled this, this huge um, uh, response or this small little shadows of us constantly raising up on a daily basis. Every day is a raising up. Every day is a demonstration of the resurrection power of coming to, to, coming to new life in new ways. Every single day, every time you open the word, essentially what you're doing is you're saying, I'm submitting to this and I want a part of me to come to life. These whispers every day, right? Um, last week we sang a song, um, Awake My Soul, Psalm 57. That's a small representation of coming to a, lot, uh, coming to a place where you're waking up, right? We're already his, we've already been saved. We're in this in-between between, like I, I am his and I will be his eternally, but right now in the middle of this life, like uh, I need to, my soul needs to wake up. I'm asleep to some of the things of God. When I read this, there's some things I just don't pay attention to because I'm snoring through it. I need to wake up to this. I belong to you, um, but, but fear and watching the news it has paralyzed me, and it's time for me to stop laying there like the paralyzed man and having my friends bring me to Jesus. I need to get up and seek him on my own. Colossians 3 is pretty clear on that. You've been raised with Christ, so what are you supposed to do now? You're supposed to set your mind on things above, not on things below. Stop watching and reading the things below and set your mind on things above. Raise up every day. We, 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 we're, we belong to Jesus, we're his, but, but we make excuses for not walking in faith like the guy from Matthew 8, 21. I know Jesus, I believe you, but I gotta go take care of these things. I love you, but uh, these things have gotta get done first, and so you'll have my complete affection when I take care of these earthly things, and Jesus is like, no, let the dead bury the dead. Rise up, follow me right now. Don't wait till tomorrow, do it right now. So this is interesting. Because something else happens at this party that picks up in verse 14. So you've got this Matthew using the entire chapter to kind of remind us it's time to wake up, it's time to rise up, it's time to pay attention, it's time to get up and follow Jesus by faith. But then we've got these other things happening and this happens at the, the party. So at verse 14, while the party's going on, the Pharisees are getting upset, the disciples of John the Baptist show up. 
And they've got some questions for Jesus. Now, I've got some questions for them, okay? Your leader, John the Baptist, he baptized Jesus and he said, hey guys, the one we've been waiting for, this is him. We've been waiting for this guy. He's the one. How come John's disciples didn't become Jesus' disciples? You ever thought about that? That bothers me. I don't have an answer for it. Is it, is it, was it celebrity culture? Like, man, John the Baptist, he's my guy. And even though Jesus says, even though John says, I'm not fit to untie the sandals of this guy, this is the guy. Hey guys, this is the guy. I'm still gonna follow this guy because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm his. No, no, you're, John would have told you, you're not mine, you're his, go follow him. But still John has disciples. And they've got questions for Jesus, which I think is comical. The disciples of John, verse 14, come to him and say, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a Worse tear is made, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed and the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. And the disciples of John are like, no, 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 fasting. Fasting, why, why don't you fast? You're talking about wineskins and weddings and no, no, we just want to know why y'all don't fast. Well, Jesus is making a really important point here. Because for a Jew, fasting was a, was a thing of mourning. Really, at this point, Jews fasted twice a week. And their fasting revolved around all of the tragic things that had ever happened in the life of Israel. Oh, we were overtaken by these people. We gave ourselves over to idols of these people. And so fasting is a way to deny my flesh and, and, and essentially to mourn. And Jesus is like, do you see where we are? Do you see what's happening? Like, take a look around. Like, we're rejoicing because somebody come to saving faith. Like, this is not a funeral. This is a wedding. I'm the bridegroom. And I'm bringing my bride unto myself. This is happy times. This is not sad times. So why in the world would we indulge in sorrow when I'm here and we're having a great time? So Jesus is not against fasting. He's for appropriate timing. Which is why I called us to a fast two weeks ago when I told all of us, get rid of social media for the next 40 days. And I want you to see what the Lord does in your life when you start waking up to not feeding yourself off the daily bread of social media and start feeding yourself off the daily bread of the word. And Jesus illustrates this again. Look, look, man, the things I'm doing, they're, they're so new and different that you can't take the old principles and the old ways, these old ways of thinking about things like fasting, and you can't apply them to the new things that I'm doing. This is new stuff. And you need to, you need to get on board with the new stuff. But in the middle of that discussion, Somebody else comes into the party. This is funny. All this is taking place at the party, right? Jesus, he can't get a peace. This is why he kept going off by himself constantly because he couldn't get any peace and quiet. So while they're at this party, the Pharisees have come, John's disciples have come, and now uh, a ruler comes to him with a request about his child who has just passed away. Verse 18. It says, while he was saying these things to them, 
behold, a ruler came in and knelt before them. And he said, my, my daughter has just died. But if you come and you lay your hands on her, she will live. That's faith, huh? The faith to get up, to not sit there and mourn with your child, to get up and go to the king and say, if you come, I know that you can do something about this. Jesus rose and followed his disciples. Behold, this is great, as he's going there, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Uh, the discharge of blood, this is a, a, a woman issue that she had, and according to the law, she was disqualified for participating in um, uh, worship and uh, temple um, events. So for 12 years, she hasn't been able to worship like she wanted to because she was declared unclean, unable to enter into the presence of God. But it didn't stop her. She believed that if she could just get close enough to him, she had faith, if she just get close enough to him, he could do something about it. So her belief produced the action of her getting up and finding him. Well, what happens? She said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. Verse 22, so Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So Jesus, he eventually made his way to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a big commotion because that's what you do. There's people who were hired to come and make a big commotion because of the sorrow. You've got to increase the sorrow and the sadness because it's such a horrible thing. And he says, you guys just go away for the girl. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And every one of them laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the little girl rose up. What did she do? She arose. She got up. And the report of this went throughout all the district. So Jesus is in this party and a man comes to him. And because of what he believes about Jesus, he takes action to find Jesus. And on the way of Jesus taking action, he finds this other woman who believes something about Jesus, which forced her to get up from where she was and to go find him. You guys see what, he, what Matthew is just telling us here? Faith is expressed in action, not a passive belief. Faith is not passive. Faith is action. And the action is expressed in getting up, waking up, and rising up. I'll give you some more examples. Verse 27. Since Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out loud, have, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, oh, yes, Lord. Yes, we do. Very much we do. Yes, we do. Yes. That's all he cried out to you, because we believe you. We believe you, and therefore we put some action behind it, and that's why we cried out to you, because we know you can do this. So then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this, but they went away and spread his fame through all the districts, because nobody listens. Nobody listens to Jesus. 
Verse 32, as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this ever seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. How did the demon possessed man get set free? Well, his friends brought him. Somebody brought this guy to Jesus. They believed, they had faith that he could be set free. So they took action. So here you've got two blind men crying out in faith. You've got somebody bringing this guy to Jesus because they believe it. What is Matthew telling us? We're 34 verses into it. What is he saying? He's saying that the common denominator between all of these stories is that all these people had faith and their faith wasn't passive. It wasn't a knowledge that they sat on. It was faith that produced action. They got up, they woke up, they rose up. Is this anywhere else in the scripture? This is James's point in James 2.22. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. There's no such thing as just saying, I believe, because I believe always produces some kind of you doing something about that belief. And if it doesn't, you don't actually believe. And that's the painful thing. That's the stick. That's the, that's the, the sword that drives through our heart because we've convinced ourselves I believe. Look, salvation is based on faith alone. There is nothing you can do to earn merit before God. You put your faith in God and salvation is 100% faith. There is no negotiating that. But is it the kind of faith that just produces, that produces inside of us a, a standing still and a not getting up and saying, yes, I believe? Or is it when we say it is faith alone, the kind of faith that propels us to get our butt out of the seat, to leave the booth we've made and to follow him, to get up out of the grave and to go follow him? Because when he, when he blows that wind on those dry bones, those dry bones don't just stay there. They get up and they follow him because faith produces action. And that's what we're studying today. This is what Matthew is trying to tell us. Faith doesn't just sit there, it produces something in you. But the question is, why? Why are we doing this? Why are we talking about this? Why is it so important to know that faith, believing in him, produces us to get up and do something? Why is that so important? Because of what he tells us in verses 35 through 38. Because faith in Jesus that produces action forces us to get up, to rise up, and to do what? Get to work with his kingdom. To start building his kingdom. Because the truth is, is that there are more people than just you who need to hear the message. The rise up didn't stop when it hit your ears. It was an invitation to get up and then begin to be the voice telling others to rise up. We are risen and not taken away immediately to heaven because we are risen and then invited to get up and join his work of now the Holy Spirit working through you, telling others, hey man, it's time to wake up. You're never gonna believe this. This guy who changed my life wants to change yours too. This is the point in 35 to 38. We'll finish this, uh, we'll finish here. Matthew uh, 9, 35. And Jesus went through all, all the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he looks at his disciples and he says, boys, the harvest is plentiful. 
but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Well, guess what? The crowds haven't gotten any smaller. The crowds have only gotten larger. We're talking the entire world now. And now that the crowds are larger, the work is even more plentiful. There's even more work to do. So what are we supposed to do as people who have been risen up, who have come up out of the grave? We're supposed to pray to the Lord, send laborers out into the field. And here's the beauty. The way we pray is actually the way he answers. Lord, send folks. And Jesus is like, yep, you. Ask me to do it. Ask me to join my team. Seek me. Come after me. Ask me to participate in my work. The work's going on and it's going to get done whether you say yes or no, but there is a whole lot of joy in you joining my work. So get up, but don't just stand there once you're up. Congratulations, you walked away from the booth, but now there's work to be done. Follow me and let me work through you. Go to the people in your life and tell them. Start crying out that a man has changed your life, that a man with all authority has come. Uh, He has authority over sin and sickness and death, and he has called you to rise up so that you can now speak to other people. Rise up, get up, wake up. That is the message of Matthew 9, and that is the message of the church. The ultimate message is he's got resurrection power. He's got ability and authority to raise us up from the grave, to bring us back from the dead, and that doesn't just happen once. It's an ongoing waking up and resurrection on a daily basis where our eyes are open to new things and new glories about his kingdom, and the invitation is for you to not just sit back and say, whoa, look at all these things I'm rising up to and waking up to and I didn't know before. It's time to get to work because there's a whole world that's lost and dying. And they need to rise up and hear the message just as loud as you did. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.